So whenever something happens to someone, trauma, there's obviously many different paths it can take, right? For me, as I reflected on each thing I've been through, and I've been through quite a bit, the most empowering thing for me is action. How can we learn from systemic issues and normalized deviance in healthcare that can easily lead to terrible outcomes for patients? Let's talk all about it with Rebecca Dodd-Mead, nurse, educator, and outspoken survivor of a serious medical error, right here on episode 448 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you want to help other people find the show, I always ask you ubiquitously to leave a rating and review on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify. Thank you to everyone who has done that. It always helps. Or if you'd like to support the show at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. $2 a month is awesome. And if you'd like to become a patron, that would be great. And if you want to uh, pledge more, I can send you some gifts in the mail. United States Postal Service, you'll get something in the mail from Nurse Keith from Santa Fe. So give that a thought. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com in the podcast drop-down menu. There also, all the details are on any app where you happen to be listening, whether it's Outcast or or. Castro or any podcast app, you will see the show notes with all of the live links. And as I said, I'm here with Rebecca Dodd-Mead. She is a nurse educator and a survivor of a medical error who has a story to tell and some caveats for those of us in healthcare and how things can be done better. So Becca, I'm really, really happy to have you here. And The first question I want to ask you is what happened and how did it change your life and how did it change your, just how you look at being a nurse? Um, Well, uh, I guess I'll start by saying I had what was hoped to be a laparoscopic hysterectomy and What I now know is that the physician really should have converted to an open hysterectomy because of the extent of my endometriosis. Unfortunately, when my physician was removing one of my ovaries from the top of my rectum, I was burned. And that in itself is really, I mean, it's not great, right? But that in itself is not the issue. The issue was so after. A period of, I don't know, 28 hours, progressively having worsening pain and just not feeling great. I suddenly had the realization that something must have been really wrong. And I presented to the ER. My family and myself were told that I had pneumonia. And at that point, I felt so poorly, I wasn't really able to process 
very much. Um, and, you know, in I would say in my previous life, I was in ER and ICU and uh, every adult patient care area nurse. So ideally, I would have an idea of what's happening. But I think what an eye-opening thing for me was realizing when you're that sick, you're literally just trying to survive, right? But I remember going to a med search floor and and first being removed from the monitor in the ER and saying, you know, my heart rate's like 130, 140, and my baseline's in the 50s. So I feel like I should be monitored. And the ER nurse said, well, there's not an order. And so I remember having a moment of reflecting on my own experience as an ER nurse and just thinking, okay, you know, I'll mention it to the staff when I get to the floor. And I arrived to the floor and I said the same thing to the uh, patient care tech or CNA that was helping me. And looking back, I think she really didn't know what to do and wanted to help. And I remember her saying, let's just see if we can get you comfortable. And so at some point, I remember the nurse coming in and you know, I said kind of a similar thing, like, you know, my heart rate's like way high and this is what my baseline is. And I truly felt di dismissed. Uh -huh. And at some point very quickly, it seemed like I, I, it seemed like it was very quickly. It was probably a couple hours. I started requiring the use of a walker. And, you know, when I tell this, when I tell my story, I, I share, you know, I'm, I'm a heavy set person, but I'm an active heavy set person. And so it's kind of weird looking back and the assumption that someone in their thirties that normally walks would just suddenly need a walker and that that wasn't a red flag, particularly with a fresh lap surgery. Right. Um, so lots of back and forth. And I remember looking up at the nurse at one point and saying something really must be wrong and just kind of getting dismissed. And I'm sure that there are multiple things that contributed to this, but as an analytical person, I look back and I see normalized deviance. Um, I see staff that are just so accustomed to being busy and accustomed to just you know, patients that have a lot of pain, hit their call light a lot, you know, don't feel like they can get to the room quick enough. And so the, there was an absence of critical thinking mm -hmm. in that moment. You know, you have somebody who's had a surgery, belly surgery in the last couple of days, they're telling you that this is very different from their baseline. So that in itself is super crucial information. Um, I know at one point I said to the nurse that she, I needed her to get the surgeon now because I had just taken a sip of contrast because, you know, to be fair, they, they did want to look at my belly with a CT scan. It's appropriate thing to do, but I said, something is wrong. I physically cannot tolerate this. And sometime later when the when the doc walked in, I said, I need an X-lap. Something is wrong. And I had seen a hospitalist a couple times, my OBGYN, and then now this new general surgeon. And so at that point, it was 10 in the morning. And 
about 11 a.m. I'm really feeling poorly, like almost like screaming in pain. Like hmm. I'm sure you've seen people where they're like, ah, you know, they just, it's like they can't breathe. Yeah. I've never experienced yeah. anything like that, thankfully. Uh, certainly haven't since. And so um, I have a friend that happened to be an old quality nurse. She, she came by, thankfully. I, I credit her with saving my life because she knew what to say to demand a rapid response. And the alarming thing is that I had requested a rapid response several times and it's starting very passively and getting more and more firm and saying like something is wrong, you know, and um, I will say the abbreviated, abbreviated version of what happened from then to when I was rushed to surgery seven hours later was that the ICU staff I had previously worked with did not recognize me. I was gray and bloated. Um, I was, you know, required stabilization in the ICU and certainly very thankful for that. And one of the things that I, I said that I was told was pretty heartbreaking for those that cared about me is that I kept saying, I just, I don't want a colostomy. And the right decision was made. I needed a colostomy. I had necrotic tissue leading to abscess and severe peritonitis um, that was quite bad by the time the inexploratory was done. And what I'm told is that because I was pretty hypoxic and just sick right so for the first day or two i my memory was kind of foggy but i kept like realizing i had the colostomy and then i would cry and i think the biggest thing that i want people to understand is not like what was me this thing happened but the decisions that you make and the way that patients can feel devalued are not limited, like the outcome of that is not limited to that situation. The fallout is so great. And when you're a nurse on a regular floor, you might not know the outcome of that situation when the patient goes to ICU and all of that. And conversely, you know, those nurses in the ICU might not know what happens before and after. And so we get very siloed. And we develop bad habits and those bad habits lead to things that matter. You know, patients become a list of tasks to nurse, to nurses and staff, and it's completely understandable, right? They're tired. They're overworked. They've been through a lot as a profession, Mm -hmm. completely understand why people feel very beaten down. I also struggle with feeling betrayed by my profession. And so that has been probably the hardest thing to reconcile. You know, I can compartmentalize certain things that happened to me, ways I was spoken harshly to, specific people that were truly unkind, 
I can kind of explain those away, but the feeling of being portrayed by my profession is something I don't think I'll ever recover from. Mm. That's a terrible feeling. I know you had a lot of really hard experiences in uh, the hospital and, you know, the med surge unit, but once you went to the ICU, I think um, you had some better experiences. What happened there and how, how was the care once you got to ICU? So the care was amazing. Um, I had actually worked with some of those nurses previously as a traveler, which was kind of a full circle experience, you know, reflecting on how well they stabilized me and cared for me before I was sent to the to the OR. That's great. So some of them knew you, even though they didn't recognize you at first because you were you were bloated and didn't look like yourself, but yeah. you got the care you needed. And that is what got you kind of pushed you over the edge in terms of turning this around. Definitely. Yeah. There was a lot of um, experiences that were really difficult to reconcile. You know, why was I spoken harshly to or why wasn't I listened to? Um, but I would definitely say the ICU was like a silver lining over a super dark cloud. And you, you use the term normalized deviance and I used it in the introduction because you actually taught me that term when you and I had our initial conversation a little while ago, a few months ago. So what I take away is that normalized deviance are those ways in which we practice that are accepted that are deviating from, let's say, evidence-based practice or good practice, at least. Is that correct? Yeah. So, and I would, I would probably use, of course, I'm, I always put on my education hat, right? Go for it. Um, so I would probably use a simple analogy, like, or a simple example, like washing mm -hmm. your hands. We have tons of literature. We know washing your hands is uh, good for preventing infection. If one unit decides, okay, we don't have the result back from the C. diff test, so we're just going to use hand sanitizer, it's probably fine. And then that patient that they're not using soap and water with and using hand sanitizer ends up not having C. diff, then what happens? then we have confirmation that what we did was okay. Mm -hmm. Not by the facts, but by our own emotions. And, are, and we, so, are we using hand sanitizer on our gloves or are we taking our gloves off and doing using it on our hands? Well, that's, that's, that's another thing. Um, you mm -hmm. know, I've certainly seen units washing gloved hands. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's cringe. like. Cringe, 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 cringe. You know, I, I just, you know, and, you know, you don't have to be a microbiologist to know why that's wrong, right? But I think over time, you have practices like that where people say, oh, well, it's worked for me the last 10, 100 times, so it must be good. Mm -hmm. It's like if you get in a car wreck and you're fine, even though you weren't wearing a seatbelt, you say, okay, well, it must be good. It's working for me. Yeah, um, I didn't need and, a seatbelt that time, so next time yeah. will be the same. Right? right. So it's deviating from what is considered best practice, um, even though we know that that best practice is 
we call it a best practice for a reason, that there's evidence behind it. And as an educator yourself, that's part of what you want to get across to the people you're mentoring or precepting or educating, that following the evidence and doing things the way that the evidence points to is actually how medicine and nursing and other disciplines have evolved, haven't they? Sure. I used Mm -hmm. to use the example of reusing needles Mm -hmm. Um, when with students. When I would explain evidence-based practice, I'd say, well, we used to reuse needles. We found evidence that that was not safe. And so we don't do that anymore. And so, you know, students, first time they hear that, they, what do you mean? What do you mean we reuse needles? That's awful. And so I'd say, well, how do you know that that's awful? Because of the evidence. It's just evidence that's been so ingrained in you that you don't really think about it. You just know it. Um, And the other thing, um, you know, we talked about feeling betrayed by my profession. So I, I'm actually not working as an educator right now. I'm um, like a house supervisor. So I certainly inject education where I can. Um, But one thing that made me shy away from it for a good while is before the surgery, I went to my leadership and said, we have an issue. We have normalized deviance. We have, you know, things that are beyond knowledge gaps and I was rebuffed and so to have that happen and then go through what I went through as a patient I just I had like a crisis of path where I said I don't know that I can do education you know what's the point and so thankfully I have some awesome uh, people in my life that know know my passion and that you know, I just needed time. And so what I've chosen to do is what's uh, referred to as exposure therapy. So you probably read in my case study that I I had PTSD. That was something I worked through. And, you know, existing with something like that, it's not always easy, but I think it's all about how you approach things. You know, you have to recognize this isn't changing. And so the only thing I have control over is my actions. And so having that perspective was actually helpful working through what my counselor and I call PTSD 2.0. So, you know, going into the hospital setting too, that was, that was tricky. Yes. Um, Now I'm super thankful to say that it's been really helpful to slowly expose myself to stuff. And so I've actually, between that and a wonderful mentor, I've, I've found my passion for education again. Mm. It's been super satisfying for me. That's, that's a great turnaround. And it's a great way of having moved through a trauma because this was a major major trauma i mean you were you were dependent on oxygen for a while you were on disability because of the the severity of you know you said you had a colostomy i remember in our conversations prior you told me you had a wound vac plural mm, effusions you had a diverted ileostomy right um so 
you know, I've known other people. I know someone who had a cesarean. It was her first birth, first and only birth. And they nicked her bowel during the cesarean. And you can imagine what happened over the coming 36 hours or so once she went home with the baby and what happened inside her gut in that space where the bowel had been nicked and that area was open after a cesarean. So very similar to you. It wasn't quite as severe as yours, but it was severe enough and resulted in a colostomy, et cetera. Um, You know, post-birth, which is no fun. So before we take a break, I just wanted to ask you, the hospital where this happened, we're not going to talk about the hospital themselves because there's no reason to name it. And, you know, we that's not really why we're here. Um, what did they say in terms of the resulting knowledge that there were some gaps in in nurse knowledge and practice within their facility. Did they have anything to say about that? No, unfortunately not. And I think a lot of it was, I I went into those conversations very naive. Um, And, you know, I'd had a lot of a life experience to that point, so I'm not a naive person. But after working with some of those individuals, on uh, you know various projects or in meetings i had the belief that they they would want to take this and use it to help others um actually my my ask of them was to take my case study and use it for mandatory education and yeah it's kind of interesting so some of the legal teams that i spoke with you know they just kind of said, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> and I said, well, surely you can. I mean, that would be better than shelling out money, wouldn't it? And, you know, ultimately it, it just, the the take-home message that, that I had was no matter what compelling evidence I brought to them, I was going to be this for one reason, right? To, I mean, it's to protect themselves. And I, you know, from a business standpoint, I totally understand why they would want to. Mm-hmm. The part for me that also felt like a betrayal was me speaking up and saying like, hey, don't you, don't you want to make this right? Don't you want to help other people? And actually, what I I don't remember this, but my partner told me that when I was in the ICU, I said to the staff, I just want to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, I can get through it as long as this isn't wasted, like it's used for the greater good. And that's really, that's, that's been a big focus of mine, not just because of my obligation as a nurse, but most importantly, because it's a means of healing. I feel like this is completely in vain if I don't find a way to use it to help, Mm -hmm. you know, other people, other patients. So, well, that's, that's a powerful way of using your own suffering as a teaching moment for others. 
in a reflex a moment of reflection or um just to help people plot a new course and look at things a little differently and be self-reflective. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about your your reflections on the profession and also what you're doing now, because there's something you're doing that you're excited about that I would like to talk about. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back for the second half of episode 448 of the Nurse Keith Show with Rebecca Dodd-Mead. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Becca Dodd-Mead. And Becca, prior to the break, we were talking about this awful experience you had and the ways in which you were gaslit within this time because you knew something was wrong and everyone was saying, you know, that nothing was wrong, even though you're you know, your pulse was what, 130? I mean, any nurse who sees a pulse of 130 should know something's up. I mean, even if your norm was 85, 130 is abnormal, you know? And for some reason, stories popping into my mind of my my mom growing up in, in the Bronx and she was, I think, four years old and a fire started in the living room because my you know, this is the 1930s and my grandfather had jerry-rigged all this electricity, like all these extension cords from like other apartments and stuff, very dangerous. And there was a fire. So my mom's like walking around, sucking her thumb, sees the fire, goes in the kitchen, says, mom, there's a fire in the living room. And her mom said, no, there's not. Go back and play. So my mom went back to the living room and had to go back like three times to say, mom, there's a fire in the living room you know, and you were basically saying, there's a fire in my belly. There's something going wrong. My body is malfunctioning and you were a nurse. So of course, sometimes nurses can be bad patients and et cetera, et cetera, malingerers, but so can anybody else. Sure. (laughs) And you know, your body, right? Anybody can call what's happening in their body and be accurate. You know, even the most uneducated person can say, you know, something's wrong here and you were not listened to and it's tragic. And what really strikes me about your story, Becca, is the fact that you shared these feelings about the nursing profession and the betrayal that you are feeling and that you're still trying to get over and in this PTSD 2.0 that you and your therapist kind of named. And here you are you're in a new educational pathway and it's not like you chose to go into engineering. You're still in the nursing world. So there's something, there's some kind of gravity holding you in nursing despite your sense of betrayal. So can you talk a little bit about how you've taken that sense of betrayal and turned it into something else for yourself and tell us what you're doing? Sure. So I I think part of it was working through some of the feelings right um and to that point it it'll be a lifelong thing for me and i think self awareness is big in that um for me to navigate those obstacles i will say i actually looked into being a vet tech <laughs> randomly um mm-hmm. 
and that was that was good for me because it really brought me back to as you say that the thing that the reason i gravitate towards nursing and that passion for mentoring and helping others and so um the another thing about me is i love creating things so as an educator um i like to create educational videos, kind of like your doodly video on your website, um, education memes. And so in between surgeries, I found myself kind of stir crazy. And so I learned laser engraving and 3D printing. And what had started out with me sitting in my recliner making macrame bracelets, because that's really all I could do, grew into me engraving coasters and selling that to fundraise and then engraving cooking spoons and selling those. And I ended up starting a nonprofit called Artisans for Good. And so I've been able to collaborate with other artists here and there, but for the most part, it's artisan for good. Um, And so right now, I've been working on some 3D printing designs to sell and fundraise. Um, And I would say working on my laser engraving to kind of pinpoint some designs that I think are are meaningful. And so the, the goal in that is to fundraise and ultimately to help people that are in positions like I was when I had this catastrophic injury and everyone around me crowdfunded for me. And so that Mm. paid for my COBRA insurance. And I can't even tell you how helpful that was just from a practical standpoint, but it really, it really helped me cope because I had some really difficult moments, particularly, I mean, as a nurse, I'm sure you know, all I have to say is my colostomy was very poorly placed. And so Mm. I can't tell you how many times I would wake up and and it would have leaked. And I would just be just devastated every time it happened. But when that would happen, my wonderful partner would say, sweetheart, you aren't your ostomy. And so that became really kind of a mantra in the house and really helped me. And so then at some point I started making cards for people that said that say you aren't your ostomy. And so these very basic, simple cards are now cards that I design on the computer and send off to print. And so over time I've been able to send out more cards, send out more bracelets to people. Um, The bracelets are, I call them progress, not perfection bracelets, because that's a mantra for those seeking to better their mental health. But for me, the, the bracelet component of all of this was a colleague actually that gave me a bracelet when I was fresh out of ICU, really struggling. Uh, with the reality of this new ostomy and dehist wound that I was now, you know, attached to a wound back. 
And there were so many nights that I would just be in terrible pain. I'd be troubleshooting the wound vac. Wound vacs are never easy. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're very emotional about it, I think that probably made it harder to troubleshoot it. Um, But I remember holding that bracelet and crying and just not feeling alone. Yeah. And so when one of my home health nurses got diagnosed with colon cancer, it was a very emotional moment for both of us when I gave her that bracelet. Mm. And so that was the first feeling of what I call paying love forward. And that's uh, something that's, you know, very very much a common thread in anything that I do through Artisans for Good. I'd love to be able to do more. And so I'm always reaching out to other artists and seeing how we can connect and collaborate. But for for right now, it's taking what I can, making what I can, fundraising for a baby that received a heart transplant and sending out, you know, care packs to patients. That's really lovely. And it's at goodartisans.org, not artisans for good. So it's goodartisans.org if people want to donate, they want to read the story, want to learn some more. So that's that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, people crowdfunded for you. So now you're turning that around and paying it forward. So that shows, you know, in some ways that's a typical nurse, like a nurse wants to you're yeah. always looking at like, how can I make someone's life better? How can I do this? How can I, how can I create something or or act in a way that's going to, you know, make someone feel less pain or feel less alone or feel less isolated? And around the profession, so despite your bet- feelings of betrayal and what you went through um, as a patient, you are now on an educational course that is unusual in that it's brand new. So can you tell us about that? Because I think that's also, it's a very interesting outcome of your entire situation from my perspective. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so the the Ohio State University in, in Columbus, Ohio, um, started a doctorate of nursing education program in January of this year. And it's the first of its kind anywhere. And for someone who has done clinical instruction and hospital education, it's been really fun, um, you know, to be in a a program that's an elevation of my current education, which is an MSN with an educator focus. And being in a cohort with other super creative people that I'm just in awe of their use of technology. And like one of the people I go to school with is, um, you know, intent on gamifying nursing education and just been really awesome. I would say the biggest difference between the DNA and the DNP is you know, a lot of people in the DNP programs, they they do a study, you know, big project at a hospital where they're looking at outcomes. And 
we're certainly going to look for outcomes in our project, but it's the focus is addressing a problem in nursing education. And hmm. so both my advisor and one of my instructors that I would say is like a phenomenal mentor to me have said, Becca, you have to choose one. Mm -hmm. Not 10, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I want to fix all the things, which is definitely what a nurse would do. Um, so that's, I think that's going to be a big opportunity for growth for me too, is laser focusing on one, you know, what's going to be the thing I put my stamp on. Right. And nursing, nursing education. Yeah. Where's your, where is your um, dissertation going to take you? Yeah. And so I want to, I want to definitely clarify something. So this is a doctorate of nursing education, a DNE, and we've all heard of the DNP now, doctor of nursing practice, right? And there's lots of nurses pursuing their DNP as nurse practitioners. So they're kind of taking it to the doctoral level. And then we have PhDs, of course, lots of people who are doing PhDs. This is a DNP, DNE, and I think you said that you're in the inaugural class of the first doctorate of nursing education program in the entire world. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. How does it feel to be, I mean, you are an educator, you love educating, right? It's what you've done. It's what your master's was focused on. How does it feel to be moving into this process or being in the process of pursuing this terminal degree in nursing that is hyper-focused on education and you're on the very, very cutting edge of nursing education, right? And all in the context of what happened to you and the betrayal you felt within the profession. So how do you contextualize the fact that you're doing this despite your experience like what's tell us about just a little bit about the 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 core of that particular journey you know yeah i think that's a great question so whenever something happens to someone trauma there's obviously many different paths it can take right for me as I reflected on each thing I've been through, and I've been through quite a bit, the most empowering thing for me is action. And it's, it's an exercise in restraint because I would love to take action and just fix all the problems, eliminate normalized deviance, right? Make sure everybody's adhering to standards of practice everywhere and it's never an issue again but what's my sphere of control and what's my sphere of concern right my concern is massive control is like little and so i think for me it was uh, a path wrought with emotion right you know, I'd started with feeling of the feeling of betrayal and then lots of ups and downs then or, or through that. I didn't think I'd be able to work as a nurse, didn't think I'd finish my master's. Right. So there's a lot of seasons through all of this where 
I just thought, I just don't know that I can keep going, you know? And I think what was meant to be happened. And I, little by little, I got my strength and, you know, from an emotional standpoint, it's been very healing, you know, to continue to better myself and also continue to remind myself that the sphere of control is small, but it's mm-hmm. not, it's not non-existent, right? Like it is there. And so if I'm home and not doing anything, I have a hundred percent chance that I won't make change. I won't mentor. I won't start the trickle effect of, you know, I help one, they help two, um, you know, but by putting myself out there, there's a chance that I'm helping. And I, I definitely get that. I get the feedback that my story helps others that, you know, there's a feeling of connectedness. You know, sometimes I talk to patients that have a fresh colostomy, you know, being able to talk, talk that through with them and some of the things I went through and, you know, that, that expression that everything's temporary. Mm-hmm. I definitely, you know, I have to decompress after those moments with patients, but I come away from it feeling like what happened to me wasn't a waste and I'm on the right path. And I'm not a hundred percent certain of what the future holds. I think the biggest thing that has been highlighted for me through you know, my recent education and professional experiences is that education and leadership are best intertwined and not siloed. I see siloing happening all over the country. And, you know, when we talk about just culture, but we don't actually act in line with those principles, we contribute to those problems, right? And so I think, you know, if I'm able to continue on this path and be in education leadership, then maybe my trickle effect can be even bigger than I thought. Uh-huh. And so in the meantime, while I try to figure that out, you know, I'm making education memes and videos with my, you know, fellow DNA students and sending out cards to patients and, you know, just trying to, trying to be the, the light for other people when they're going through where I was, you know. That's really beautiful. And it's really like the ultimate example of making lemonade out of lemons. I mean, you were handed a situation that was pretty, pretty bad. And you you know, you could be extremely bitter. You could be writing incredibly negative diatribes about the nursing profession. You know, you could have quit healthcare entirely and, you know, borrowed $50,000 and opened a cafe somewhere, right? You could have, there's a lot of things you could have done, Um, but you decided to double down on nursing 
and double down on educating others, um, pushing back against normalized deviance, pushing forward uh, evidence-based practice and critical thinking, and also at the same time, on the other side of the equation, doing acts of kindness through your goodartisans.org, artisans for good. So, you know, you're you're you you have this very kind of multifaceted way in which you've turned this situation around. And it's really wonderful to hear the story. And I really want people to go to good artisans and read about it and make some donations and help you along in your process. And we'll also have a link to your LinkedIn so people can find you over there. And I look forward to when you finish your thesis and then write a book. So, you know, that'll be next. That's I'm planning your future for you, Becca. Hey, I I love that. I'll put some news in there. Oh, good. Okay. Awesome. So before we go though, I have four questions I ask all my guests. Are you game for a little lightning round? They're, you have to be relatively concise, but um, okay. these are questions that are thought-provoking. Okay? I'm game. Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success, either personally or professionally? Leaving the world better than you found it. Hmm. All right. Um, you are not the first person to say that, so you're, you're in good company. Okay. Second question is, could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous, or someone that, you know, none of us would ever have met. Um, my grandma. Oh yeah. Tell us about her. Um, she was the best. She was an artist. She was generous. She was loving. Um, she always fussed at me that I should eat grapefruit. And that was really the only fight we ever had. She was just my number one supporter. And I miss her every day, but I'm also like so thankful that I had her. That's so nice. What was her name? Artelia. Artelia. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot, a lot of guests have mentioned grandmothers and mothers. Like that, that's really, really common. And um, many have mentioned grandmothers. So that's that's really, really lovely. Okay, third question, the penultimate question. Is there a book or a movie, doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but a book or movie that you can think of that's impacted the way you live, the way you think, the way you approach work, life, relationships, just something that you think people might enjoy checking out that's had an impact on you? So this is this is going to be in deep contrast to our entire conversation. Awesome. I cannot say that, that this movie changed my life. Okay. But for me, I'm such a deep thinker in everything that I do. Uh-huh. When I watch TV, I just want to completely relax. And so the movie with Will Ferrell, the other guys, is... Uh-huh. Like hands down, if I feel stressed out and I want to relax and do something mindless, that's what I watch. I love that because we all want to think of like, you know, the most moving philosophical book or the deepest movie. And and I think admitting, you know, that you have a a pleasure in your life and like this Wolf, I mean, Wolf Ferrell's amazing. And if if this movie like 
if that's your go-to for, you know, opening your heart and laughing and like just being flooded with endorphins or in dopamine. I mean, that's awesome. And we should, we should tell Will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he can donate a ton of money to your, to your cause. So hey, there you go. Love there's that. an idea. Okay. So last question. And in some ways you've already answered this in my mind, but I'm going to ask you anyway, if you were named queen of the world tomorrow and you have ultimate power, well, it's one of the first things you would want to do to improve your subjects' lives. Just the first thing, because there's many other things you would do, but just the first act. It would be fixing all of the problems in healthcare. All right. So, so enormous inside out healthcare reform. Yeah, that would be, I, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if we could just do that? Just mm -hmm. in an instant. Yeah. And everybody who needed it had it. And no one went to, no one became bankrupt because their child needed a transplant, right? All those sorts of stories that we hear. Definitely. Persons living in a trailer because they lost their beautiful home that they built, right? Because mm -hmm. they had cancer, you know, whatever, all those stories. So definitely. Yeah. Well, you would be a, a, beneficent queen i have no doubt appreciate that well becca thank you so much this has been so wonderful i'm glad we met and i look forward to hearing about how your doctorate of nursing education goes and when you graduate in the very first class graduating with the dne in the entire world in the history of nursing that is really amazing and i look forward to your book when you write your book so thank you so much. You're an amazing, amazing person and an incredible example to every nurse in the world. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. All of I appreciate all of it. Your time, your podcast, your warmth. It's been really great. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com or wherever you happen to be listening, whatever app. And please, 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 please go to goodartisans.org and let Becca know that you heard her or go to her LinkedIn and get in touch with her. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this show, from this episode, from Becca's story. If you need holistic career coaching, check out Nurse Keith Coaching at nursekeith.com and you can get 10% off your first coaching package if you mention the show in your initial outreach to me. And if you wanna be a patron, patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. Check it out if you would like to support the show in that particular way. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com and we are droidly produced by the wonderful, inimitable Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from absolutely beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Rebecca Dodd-Mead saying arrivederci from Columbus, Ohio. All right. Thank you, Becca. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you, of course, on the proverbial flip side. Hold up. 